Well, thank you all for singing. A great joy to hear you. Open your Bibles this morning, please, to the book of Romans, the epistle to the Romans, an early church here in the Roman Empire, the capital of the Roman Empire. And Paul writes to this church. He's never been there, but he wants them to prepare for his coming. He wants them to know about the gospel in full. He trusts that there are believers there, but he says he's going to tell them about the gospel. And then he spends 16 chapters opening that up and applying that to the Christian life. And so we've been looking at Romans for a couple of years now. Romans 1 is where Paul defines what his purpose is in the letter. But I'll save that for later in the sermon when we look at a specific verse. The theme of Romans keeps reappearing, as you would expect, in the book. It is righteousness. Righteousness of God that we can only receive by faith. And that is the title for today's sermon, Righteousness by Faith. I thought certainly I've used this title before. I could not find a previous sermon that I've used that, but it's such a common theme in this book that it just keeps coming up almost every chapter. We almost made it out of chapter 9 before it came up, but it now comes up at the end here, Romans 9, 30 through 33. So I want to read that to you. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness laid hold of righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not attain that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And the one who believes upon him will not be put to shame. As we've gotten into Romans 9, we've talked a lot about election, God's sovereignty. And today with this passage, the theme, a sub-theme you might say of this section changes a bit. It goes from God's sovereignty now to man's responsibility. Man's responsibility. Remember, Paul has been asking, and it's the reason Romans 9 through 11 are even here. He's been asking a question. If you look in Romans 9, 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. So the question is, what about Israel? God, if we're supposed to trust that once we're justified, even as Gentiles, if we're supposed to trust you, that you will make sure we persevere to the end, that you will remain faithful, God. What about Israel? There's so many Jews who don't believe in their Messiah. And so Paul has been answering this question. And he says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. Because that's the accusation. God's word, God's promises have failed. And he begins to answer this question in the next three chapters. Now up to this point in chapter 9, the first part of the answer that Paul gives is God's election. That not every Israelite will be saved because God hasn't chosen every Israelite to be saved. He says there is a true Israel within Israel. The nation Israel, all the Jews, Paul says, God has not saved all of them, but has made a selection. He has made a choice. Look at Romans 9, 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God, according to his choice would stand. It's God's choice. It's God's purpose. So that his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. 
So the first answer Paul gives as to why all Israel is not saved is because they're not all chosen. They're not all elect. And Paul even dealt with the excuses that come from that. Who can resist his will? It's not my fault I'm a sinner then. How can I go to hell if I'm not elect? And so on. And yet here we have the answer in the rest of Romans 9. And we saw that end in in verse 29. Now in verse 30, he gives the second part of the answer. So first was God's election. And now from 930 all the way through chapter 10, he speaks of man's responsibility. Why are not all the Israelites saved? Why didn't they all believe in Jesus? Because Israel is responsible to have faith in Christ Jesus. Yes, God's sovereignty and election is true. Yes, man's responsibility and his responsibility to believe in the Messiah when the gospel is presented is true. Both are true. Both are answers to this question. And then the third answer that Paul will give, the third part, we might say, to his overall answer is in chapter 11, and that God is faithful. God's faithfulness will prevail. He will actually save the nation of Israel when Christ returns, all that are living on that day. Now let's return to this question of God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. Because as we were going through chapter 9, I tried to bring out some of the questions that you might have in your mind or friends of yours might have or people you talk to or maybe people, Christians even, of another persuasion, another way of thinking. That man's free will is ultimate and that God just responds to what we believe, what we think. Well, we saw that that's not the case. God is the potter. We are the clay. We're the sinful lump of clay that he shapes. That's God's sovereignty. He is sovereign and no one would be saved if it wasn't for God's grace, if it wasn't for God's mercy. Not just in sending Christ. Yes, we have to have a Savior. But in actually choosing and calling those who would believe. So that's God's election. Now we have this idea of man's responsibility, which ends up being no Jew or Gentile for that matter can or will be saved unless they have faith in the Messiah. In fact, people go to hell for their sin and they go to heaven because of God's grace. If we get that wrong, we don't understand what's being taught in the New Testament. People go to hell for their sin and people go to heaven because of God's grace. So he's going to say here, the Jews did not believe in the Messiah. That is their responsibility. Salvation is all of God and rejection of that salvation is on man's account. That's man's responsibility. The man or woman who rejects Christ is held accountable for that. For not believing in Jesus as Messiah, as King, as Savior. See, God is totally sovereign over all things. That's why sovereignty was mentioned first in Romans 9 through 11. In fact, in Ephesians, is similar. Starts the book with God's sovereignty. And then later in chapter 2, comes to this idea of us having faith. But it's ultimately by God's grace. So how do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile God's sovereign choice and who is saved and man's responsibility? And you've probably heard me say we cannot fully and logically reconcile that today. I don't know if we ever will. Some people think in eternity, we'll have all the answers. God's going to reveal what he wants to reveal to us in heaven. We can't really speak to that. The Bible doesn't say we'll know all things. We won't know all things or we would be God. Only God knows all things. 
However, we must believe what is in the Bible. This is God's word to us. We must believe what is in Scripture. We don't have to give an answer to the unbeliever or to the person here who rejects this teaching. We just need to point them to Scripture. That's our answer. We don't have to reconcile it philosophically or logically. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, was asked how he reconciled divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And he replied, I never try to reconcile friends. In other words, he doesn't need to reconcile them. They're already friends. There's no animosity. There's no fighting between these two truths. They are both in Scripture, and we're called to believe them. We're called to believe what God's Word says and not try to destroy one over the other. What happens when you just talk about God's sovereignty all the time and never man's responsibility? We become a bunch of eggheads, the frozen chosen, as MacArthur calls it. A bunch of eggheads who, oh yeah, we know all about God's sovereignty, but we couldn't go to somebody else and tell them to believe in Christ and have faith and repent. Sometimes in church history, little groups have developed. It's not as common as people often believe, but groups called hyper-Calvinists, those who take these too far and do not evangelize and do not even invite other people to church. More common in our day is to try to destroy this idea that God is ultimately sovereign, try to take that out of the Bible and say it's man's free will, and it's all about convincing and persuading people, and forget about God's sovereignty, sola gratia, by grace alone. Well, we're going to err if we move too far either direction. We keep on the railroad tracks, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, and run the race that the scripture describes. So now we come to this new section here on man's responsibility. And Paul is going to explain from man's point of view why Israel did not believe. Why did Israel not believe in the Messiah, the Messiah that was promised them, the Messiah that was described in the Old Testament in so many places, prophesied even by Moses, the one that all Jews looked to as the giver of the law. Why did they not believe, and yet so many Gentiles did? Why is this room full of Gentiles today and not full of Jews? Of course, we already saw one answer, God's sovereign election. But here, he drills down to the point of them not believing. They did not have faith. They did not receive the righteousness that can only come through Christ because they did not have faith. They did not have faith. So here I want you to see in this passage three truths on how to lay hold of the righteousness of God. This is about how does a person lay hold of, receive, grab onto the righteousness of God. Yes, it's about Gentiles. Yes, it's about Israel. And we need to understand that context. But how do we apply it today to us? Three truths on how to lay hold of the righteousness of God. You need to understand this for your own life, your Christian walk, but also as you talk to others about the gospel. When I was first a believer, I did not quite understand what I needed to about the gospel because of the church I was in. And I thought evangelism was pin somebody down in a room, kind of like a multi-level marketing thing, and then just lay it on them and not let them go. And it was up to you to convince them or they were going to hell. And that would be on your account. Then I began to see in scripture how the apostles evangelized and how Jesus did it. And it was quite different than that. I needed to understand more about the gospel. And that's what Paul's been doing in Romans. He continues here in this one. These three truths. Number one, righteousness is by faith alone. 
Now, if you've been around here long, you've heard that many times. You just recently probably heard it at the Reformation celebration. This is one of the five solas of the Reformation. They did not invent the five solas. The Reformers didn't in the 1500s. They brought it back because the church had moved away from that. They had lost that amidst all the smells and bells and all the things that they did in the European Catholic Church. But Paul says here, righteousness is by faith alone. In verse 30, he starts off, what shall we say then? This question, it brings a conclusion to what's previously been said. What do we say about all of this? What's our, our conclusion and, and transition into this new topic? That's the biblical way of making a transition here. What shall we say then? What's another answer that Paul can give to the question of the unbelieving Jews? And here's what the conclusion is. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness laid hold of righteousness. The Gentiles made no effort. This is shocking to the Jew. It would have been shocking, I think, even to the apostles. You see, you see Peter in the book of Acts kind of shocked at what's happening as he goes out and preaches. God has to tell him, look, you can go into their homes. You can eat their food. You can eat some bacon. And, and we're thankful for those kinds of things. But, you know, the Gentiles were not a people looking for God. They were not a people looking for the true God. And it says here that Gentiles, not the Gentiles, he's not talking about all of them have found this righteousness. The article is left off. It's just referring to some Gentiles who believe, even though they did not pursue it. They, they were not looking for it. And the word here for pursue means to run as in a race or really in, in hunting, you would chase after an animal. And you wouldn't just drive in your pickup truck to shoot a deer, but you would get your, your bows out and you'd have to chase this thing across the fields and across the forest to kill an animal when you were hunting. And that's the pursuit that Paul is talking about here, to run after it. They did not go hunting for righteousness. They were pagans. And you know what pagans do? They do pagan things. And they worshiped their false gods. And they found and sought out their, their lusts of the flesh in any way that they could. They were not trying to find the true God, Yahweh, the true God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Yes, they might live a moral life. You can read philosophers trying to use their minds to figure out the world. You can read Plato and Aristotle. And they're talking about what kind of ethics they should live by and how they should live a moral life. But this was not to have right standing before the true God. There was not this idea in the pagan world of how we're all sinners and we need to be made right with the creator of the universe. Yes, we know Romans 1, Paul's already told us, they all knew that, but they denied it. And he gave them over and he gave them over to the worship of idols as a judgment. So they're not trying to find the true God. In fact, he said in Romans 3, there's none who understands, none who seeks for God. All mankind has turned aside. There is none who does good, not even one. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's how he concludes that section in Romans 3. How do we boil down an unbeliever? There's no fear of God before their eyes. That is unbelief in a nutshell. There's no fear of God before their eyes. They did not have the Bible. They did not have the scriptures. They did not have the prophets. No prophet, except in a few cases like Jonah, was sent 
to a Gentile people. They were without God. They were separated from the covenants. They were separated from the promises of God as we looked at last week. That's the state of the non-Jews. And how many of us are in the exact same situation? Maybe we knew about the Bible growing up. Maybe we kind of knew some things that pagans in Paul's day didn't know. But we were still on our own path of destruction. Even if we knew God and we were trying to be a good person and we were trying to live a good life, we were running from God. We were more like Jonah, weren't we? We were like Judas, betraying Christ over and over, saying, oh yeah, I grew up a Christian. I'm a Christian. Of course I'm a Christian. And we were stabbing Christ and betraying him over and over with our life and telling others that we somehow were following Christ. How many of us were not seeking God and yet he saved us? All of us. We weren't truly seeking God because no one seeks for God. If you were saved past a very young age, which you can't remember really your sin at a young age, but if you were saved any point after that, you realize God came and got you. Jesus came and found you the lost sheep. You, pagan Gentile, even though you might consider yourself an American Christian living in a Christian nation, God came and got you in a pagan world, in a pagan nation, and got you and saved you if you're saved here today. You weren't looking for him. Don't pat yourself on the back. None of us were. We were following our own lusts, which are called idols. And yet, the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, laid hold of righteousness. That's a description of us as well. And here's what he says. They laid hold of the righteousness. To lay hold means to make it your own, to win it. Again, describing this competition, this race. To, to lay hold of it as a prize. It's different than the verse 31, the word there. That's attain in the LSB. And it's good that translators tried to separate it. Lay hold in verse 30 and attain in verse 31. Two different words there. Here, lay hold is to take hold of that prize. We see this in Philippians 3.12. A common verse that you might know on sanctification Not that I have already obtained it. That's not our word here. Or have already become perfect. But I press on so that I may what? Lay hold of that for which I was lay hold of by Christ Jesus. We're we're seeking to lay hold of something. And he says, I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He, He took us on. He won us with his sacrifice. And we're to seek after him through our sanctification. And Paul says, brothers, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet. Three times he uses that idea of laid hold of. Because in the ancient world, sports was a big thing as it is today. And people would run these races and go for the prize and win the wreath and win the gold. And that is the illustration that he often uses for the Christian life. Here it's more not for sanctification, but it is for justification. For this idea of being declared righteous. Justification, acquiring the righteousness of Christ, being declared righteous because his righteousness is put on our account when we believe. That's the only way you can win the race. It's not a race you can work for, as we'll see. It's a race that God gives us the prize for through faith. Now, what is this righteousness that he's talking about? He uses it 29 times. That's why it's the theme of Romans. 29 times in this epistle. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ. 
It's not God's attribute. God doesn't carve off a piece of himself and start sending it out to every person who believes. That's ridiculous. What this is talking about is an accounting term, a a transaction here, whenever God reckons to Abraham righteousness. Reckon is an accounting term. It's talking about on your account as a sinner, you had sin. And sin number one, two, three, one trillion on your account. And here comes Christ dying on the cross. And he has infinite righteousness. He lived a perfect life. He obeyed every command. He never sinned. And when you believe, sin's gone from yours. Christ's righteousness put upon your account. Let's look at this in Romans. Just a few places. We're not going through all 29. Romans 1.17. The theme of the letter here. Paul says in 1.16, he's going to take the gospel out to the Jew first and the Greek. Because no one will be saved if they don't hear the gospel. There's no way to be saved without the gospel. Here's why. Here's why he wrote this letter. Verse 17. For in it, for in the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. Where does this credit of righteousness come from? It comes from Christ. That's what he's going to open up in the next few chapters. He writes something similar in 2 Corinthians 5.21, getting very specific. He says, he, that's God the Father, made him, that's Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He didn't become a sinner. He took on our sin. And then he goes on in 2 Corinthians 5.21, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. This is a key doctrine when it comes to the gospel. A lot of people who call themselves Christians deny this. They say we're not receiving the righteousness of Christ. There is no transaction. They call it a fiction. And I'm not just saying liberal Christians say this. There are those who are more conservative that deny this. This idea of substitution. That Christ died in our place to pay for the penalty that we owed for our sin. And even more that say it's not about his righteousness going on our account. It's not even about him living a perfect life of active obedience and then, of course, passive obedience as he went to the cross. But friends, this is called double imputation and it's all over Scripture that our sin is removed. That's one imputation and put on Christ on the cross and his righteousness is put on us. That's double imputation. We're imputed with his righteousness. He's imputed with our sin as he suffered on the cross for sinners. The worst of us was given to him, and the best of him given to us. Isn't that amazing? That's what happened with these Gentiles. That's what would have been shocking to the Jews in that day. We've kind of gotten used to that in our everyday going to church each week and learning about this. But we need to remember, this is amazing. The Son of God would come and take on flesh and die for sinners. People who weren't looking for him. You know, your European ancestors or your Asian ancestors or your African ancestors weren't looking for the true God of Scripture. And yet, here we are. Christians, saved, righteous. That only comes through faith. Look at what he says in the rest of the verse. Even the righteousness which is by faith. Faith, it means to trust in, to rely on, to commit to. 
to follow Christ. It's not just some nice warm feeling that you get. It's actually a commitment. It's a desire. Yes, there are feelings that come with those desires, but it is a commitment to follow Christ and rely upon him for salvation. It's saying, I can't save myself. He's got to do it. And I have faith that he will and that he can and that he has. It's a full-hearted commitment to put all that you are and all that you have in his hand. That's what it means to have faith. It's not just a, a nice word. Faith. It's not just a nice word to say, I believe. That's true. If you do believe, you can use that terminology. But remember, it's faith in Christ for salvation. And he gives us his righteousness as a result of that. You admit you have no hope for salvation without him. You trust that he is the only hope of your salvation. You truly believe in him and aren't trying to work for it yourself. You remember last week during communion, one of the things that I said, and we often say this when we do communion, is to examine yourself. That's one warning to Christians. But also don't take communion unless you have faith alone in Christ alone. Because that's a true believer. And true believers should take communion. Not false converts or those who are working for their righteousness. Now having received the righteousness of God in Christ, how has their relationship changed? These Gentiles who weren't seeking for God, what did they receive after that? After they found the true God of Scripture in the gospel that was presented to them. And God found them, we know, that came first. Or Paul's been talking about it in Romans. He said, therefore, having been justified by faith, they have peace with God. They have peace with God. That's the first thing he describes in chapter 5. He said, once sin had abounded in them, but now grace is abounding all the more. Their sins have been forgiven. They received the righteousness of Christ. No more eternal punishments. That's a big benefit, isn't it, of being justified. Now, we should love justification because it draws us now to the one true God. and We can have a relationship with him and we can get to know him. But it's certainly a good thing that we don't have to go to eternal punishment. Sometimes that's all people talk about in Sunday school classes and other churches, of course. And growing up, I would hear about hell. But I didn't hear much about having a, a true, saving, eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes, there's hellfire and brimstone, but there's also eternity with Christ. And we should talk about both of these when we present the gospel as often as we can. What else did they receive? The Holy Spirit indwelling their hearts, he told us in Chapter 8, we're free from the law of sin and death. We're adopted as sons into the family of God. And they have the promise that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your sins are gone. They've been removed as far as the east is from the west. Spurgeon says, Yet when the gospel burst in upon the midnight of their souls, they received its light with joy and accepted the good news from heaven with much readiness of mind. They had not sought the shepherd, but he had sought them. And laying them on his shoulders, he brought them to his fold. That was us. That was these Gentiles. That was every believer here today. This was our brothers and sisters here in the Lord. We're not most of us of Jewish descent. We were just doing our own pagan thing, even if we grew up as a Christian and God comes and he takes us and he brings us into his fold. We receive something we were not 
looking for. We were slaves of sin, and now we're slaves of Christ. Number two, the second truth here, the second truth is righteousness is excluded by works. Righteousness is excluded by works. That's verse 31 and the first part of 32. So first, righteousness is by faith. Now he goes the other way and tells us why the Jews have not believed. Why are they not saved? Why do they not have the righteousness of God? And we see this paradox. The Gentiles received what they were not looking for. The Jews were looking for it and didn't receive it. It seems backwards. It seems opposite. 31, verse 31. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness. Same verb here for pursuing. They were hunting it down. They were looking for it. They were running towards it. They were seeing it in the distance, they thought. And they were trying to run as fast as they could towards it. But how did they do it? They ran pursuing a law of righteousness. They were trying to obey the law, the law of Moses. God has given the law to Israel, and he was saying to them, this is the standard of righteousness. He says, I've redeemed you. I've brought you out of Egypt. I physically saved you. Now here's my law. Go and obey it. Be holy as I am holy. This is the standard. And over time, they began to think that obedience to it was the way to earning the righteousness of God. If you go back and read Exodus, God's really clear. He does not say, here's my law. If you obey it, then you'll have the righteousness. Then you'll be justified. No, God says, I've already saved you. Now obey this law. In other words, be sanctified as you live your life as my holy people. And you know what they said? Amen, we'll do it. We'll do it. Of course, we see them fail over and over and over. And by Jesus' day, by Paul's day, they think if they're just good enough, if they just get serious enough about obeying the law, they will attain the righteousness that the law presents. Their aim was perfect obedience to the law to merit righteousness. And Paul says they did not attain that law. They did not attain that law. They did not arrive at the state of righteousness. They did not receive what the Gentiles received by grace. Because they were trying to earn it, work harder and harder at it. But they only got further and further from the truth. Have you ever tried to evangelize somebody who's grown up with a lot of legalism? Maybe a Roman Catholic friend or family member? And they've invested their whole life in that. And they've spent years and they've given all these things to the church. And they have all these relationships. Much harder to evangelize someone like that. Because they're invested. They pursued it with all their might. But this pagan guy who was in prison yesterday and got out and is looking for some new way to live. Suddenly hears the gospel and is saved. How can that be? How can that be? They were pursuing the law of righteousness, and they did not attain to that law, to that standard that the law presented. Why? Verse 32 tells us they did not pursue it by faith. They were focused on the law, and they were focused on the law wrongly. They were trying to earn something by it, and they missed faith. 
are. You could say they rejected the gospel that says we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. They said we do not need this so-called Messiah. They believed in God and they believed in works to justify them. They said, oh yeah, we have faith, not in the Messiah. We have faith in God and we'll mix in some of our works and God will accept us. Or here's how it sounds today. God will look one day and he will see all the good that I've done. And that'll be on this side of the seesaw. And then he'll see the little bit of sin that I've done. And it'll just be so much good that I've done. He'll let me into his heaven. That's the Jews. They said, yeah, we're sinners. But we can overcome that by obeying the law. The Pharisees made it a life. And they went around telling everybody to live just like they told them to. Obey the law. Earn your righteousness. Syncretism. Synergism. This is why Christianity, biblical Christianity, doesn't mix with some kind of works righteousness. It's why, the main reason why, Roman Catholics are not following the true gospel. Why Mormons, why Jehovah's Witnesses are not. Because they mix in works. They mix in works with their faith and say it's both together. Not works when you're saved and now you're living it out. But works to be justified, to be considered righteous. And Paul says, but as though it were by works. Good works will not save anyone. Good works do not save anyone. They never have saved anyone. They never will save anyone. You cannot be saved by your good works. You know what the Bible says about your good works? Filthy rags. To be more explicit, filthy, bloody rags. They're meant to be thrown out. The best you can do without Christ, the best you can do is garbage. That's pretty harsh, Pastor. You should read the prophets in the Old Testament if you think that's harsh. You should read the book of Revelation. God is not messing around with eternity. He's not saying he's just going to overlook your dirty, bloody rags and accept them and pretend that they're golden jewels. No. Our works are nothing. Without Christ, we have no eternal salvation. And Paul says the problem is that they were trying to work towards righteousness. They were set on trying to do it by works. Now notice this word, as though, or maybe your translation says as if. That's important. He's saying they were mistaken. They were mistaken. They thought they could gain righteousness as if it were possible to do so. As if it were possible to obey the law. They did not obtain it because that's not the purpose of the law. We've been through this all throughout the book of Romans. Paul's really great at laying out the law, laying out faith, laying out righteousness. Let's look at the purpose of the law as Paul has told us here. First of all, most of us realize in the Old Testament, God gave the law as a standard of righteousness and it taught us about him. It taught us what holiness is. The law is given to teach us that God is holy and expects his people to be holy. But Paul also says something else in Romans 3.20. Another purpose of the law. Go to Romans 3.20. Sometimes we, we kind of miss this as we go through the New Testament quickly. Why did God give the law? Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. 
That's Paul's way of saying it's not even possible. But look at what he says after this. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Why did God give us a law? So that we would know we're sinners. So that we would know that we're not righteous in ourselves. So that we would look in the mirror and we would think, before I look in the mirror, we would think, I'm so beautiful. I look great. And then we would look in the mirror and see that we're covered in dirt. That our hair is all messed up. You know, it's, it's too long. We're covered in dirt. That is what the law does. It's like a mirror. It reveals what we truly are. Sinners before God. We don't compare to the law. We can't even measure up to it. Look at 520. He continues this throughout Romans. Romans 520. Now the law came in so that transgressions would increase. Wow, Paul, you're not just saying that we saw our own sin, but you're saying that when we saw the law, we wanted to sin even more. Yeah, that's what he's saying. That our human nature knew what was right. Even if you've never heard of the Ten Commandments, you know what's right and wrong in your heart, and you want to push back against that. And you want to rebel all the more. Like a child who grows up in a really, really legalistic, strict home, and as soon as they get out, they rebel as much as possible in the other direction. That's how we all were as unbelievers, trying to rebel. Maybe society and our parents and our job would kind of hem us in so we weren't as bad as we could be, but we were still looking for every opportunity to increase transgressions. That's what the Bible says. Now he goes on to say, so that grace would abound all the more. Amen. Look at chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. It's not possible. The law is not sinful. It's not the law's fault that we sin when we see it, when we read it, when we understand it. No, that's not the law's fault. He says, rather, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. The law reveals my sin, he says. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment. See, it was sin that did it. And it sees the law and it takes an opportunity. It, it, it lays a siege against it. And it worked out in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. He's not saying there is no sin without the law. He's saying it was kind of dormant. You know, it's, it's on the back burner. Yeah, I'm sinning. But now when I see God's righteous standards, I just want to break every law. It's like telling a little kid, don't touch this. And all they can think about is, I want to touch that. Now go to 13, 7, 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Is it the law's fault when we go and die eternally? It never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by working out my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, that's the law, sin would become utterly sinful. It exposes us. We push back against it. We're even more sinful. And we become utterly sinful when being compared to God's righteous standard. It's not even possible. If God had designed the law to save someone, which he didn't, it's not possible because of our depravity to even obey it. Because James says if you break one law, it's like you broke the whole thing. And you're guilty of all the commandments being broken. All right, the third reason the law was given is to point us to Christ. So the idea is, 
If you're already saved, you look at the law, whether it's the Mosaic law or the law of Christ in the New Testament, you look at the law if you're saved and you say, now I know how to live and please God. But if you're not saved, if you're not justified, you look at the law and you say, look at how sinful I am. And that, in turn, is supposed to drive you to Christ. The third purpose is to drive us to Christ. Look at Romans 10.5. This is where we're going. Romans 10.5. And he says here, for Moses, I'm sorry, 10.4, 10.4. For Christ is the end. He's the goal. He's the purpose. That's what the end means. The end of the race. Christ is right there. We look at the law and it tells us how sinful we are. And we're supposed to then be driven to the only one who has perfect righteousness, Christ. So he's the end of the law for righteousness. You can't, you can't get there through the law. Christ is the goal. The law points to him, to everyone who believes. That's what Paul's getting at in Galatians 3.14. Therefore, the law has become our tutor unto Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. The tutor is the one with the paddle spanking your kids to get them to class in ancient times. You paid for this tutor. You paid for him to get the kids to class. So he whips them if they don't get going. He drives them to the point, which is, in this case, Christ. Since we're talking about Galatians, let's just go there. We need to understand, sometimes people get confused about the law. Galatians 2.16. And then we'll also look at chapter 3. 2.16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Same author as Romans. He's now writing to a different group. This group really thinks if they obey the law, then they'll earn God's righteousness. They're going to mix it in with their faith. And he says, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith. That's the only way, not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. To make it even more clear, in 3.19, he wraps this up. He says, why the law then? Again, what's the purpose of the law? Because the Galatians really are hearing about this new thing called the law of Moses, and they want to follow it. The Judaizers have come into Galatia, and they've said, if you want to be a real Christian, you'll follow all these rules in the Old Testament. And Paul says, why the law then? If, if we're not to follow it, it's by faith that we're saved. We're not following it to earn righteousness. What's the purpose? It was added because of trespasses. Having been ordained through angels by the hand of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Again, exposing our sin, driving us to Christ. Look at verse 20. Now a mediator is not for one person only, whereas God is one. Okay, so he's talking about Christ the mediator. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is it working against God? May it never be. It's God's law. It works exactly as he designed it to work. Because they thought they could obey it and get saved. Now look what he says. It's very interesting here. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. If it's possible to be saved by obeying the law perfectly, then you could do it. Not in the sense of being totally depraved, but there would be another way, another method. He's saying it's not possible. That's not how God designed it. That was not his intent. That was not his purpose. 
This is why Israel could not do what they hoped to do. They could not be justified by works. God didn't design the law for that purpose, and they couldn't do it anyway because of their sin. So from both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, it was not possible to be justified by works. Martin Lloyd-Jones sums it up. He says, we are confronted by this astonishing fact that the people who never gave a single thought to God are right with God. Whereas the people to whom the biggest thing in life, in a sense, was religion and being right with God are not right with him. All right, third truth. Third truth. Righteousness is only through Christ alone. Another sola. Solus Christus in Latin. One of the five solas of the Reformation. Yes, faith alone. But faith in who? Faith in what? Whenever somebody says, oh yeah, I have faith, I believe. Ask them, in who? In what? Faith has an object. You know, you can go to the store and buy coffee mugs that say faith on it. Why don't they say faith in Christ on it? That would not sell as much in this world today, would it? Believe. Believe in what? Believe in who? Christ. He says in verse 32, the second half, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. He's using the the picture here, Paul is, drawn out for us in this passage. Israel's running the race down the path. They're they're running a race. The, The Gentiles weren't even running the race. They weren't even looking for it. They received it. The Jews are running this race. And in the path is this big stone. And it's placed there by God. And they hit the stone and trip over it and fall to their death. That's the idea of a stumbling stone. The stone is Jesus, the promised Messiah. Instead of stopping and looking at the stone and considering the stone and building their life on the solid rock in which we stand, they tripped over it. They weren't looking at it. They were trying to ignore it. You can't ignore this big stone. It's right in the way, and they tripped on it and broke their neck, spiritually speaking. A fatal fall to their eternal death. Now, there's a long line of stone prophecies in the Old Testament, picked up in the New Testament. I wish we had time. Maybe someday I'll do a a sermon series on the stone prophecies. Let's go to Matthew 21 just to get a, a small sample here of what Jesus says regarding himself. Matthew 21, 42. Most of these stone prophecies relate back to Psalm 118. That's not what Paul is using, but a lot of the other places that mention the stone are citing Psalm 118. Matthew 21, 42. Here's Jesus presenting the gospel to the Jews. Matthew 21, 42. Jesus said to them, Did you ever read in the scriptures, talking about the Old Testament, the Bible of his day, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. The builders, who were supposed to be building something for God, a temple, spiritually speaking, Rejected the chief cornerstone, the thing you need to start the building and get everything set just right. They threw it out. They rejected it. And this came about from the Lord. This was God's sovereignty, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And Jesus now preaches this. He says, Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. That's that's not a warm and fuzzy way of saying something. That is saying, seriously, this person who falls and trips over Jesus will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him 
like dust. We'll scatter him like dust. I think the first one is talking about in your own heart, you'll be broken over your sin. And in the second case, scattered in the dust is really bad. You can be broken to pieces in your heart, but scattering in the dust is eternal judgment. So there's just a, a sampling of what Jesus is doing with the stone prophecy there from Psalm 118. Now, Paul, he chooses to quote from the Old Testament to back up what he was saying. Not from Psalm 118, but from Isaiah. He's really liked Isaiah here in Romans 9. So he goes back to Isaiah 28, 16, and he takes a little snippet from Isaiah 8, 14, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Most of this comes from Isaiah 28, 16, just as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion. This is God saying he's going to put something in Zion, in Jerusalem, in the capital of Israel, in the place where the temple is. God is going to put the stone there in Jerusalem where Jesus would die and when he would be raised from the dead. It's there that all this is going to come about. And it's prophesied in Isaiah. This is God's predestined plan. God is going to do this. Everything that comes about with these stone prophecies, God has said will happen. It's God's sovereignty. Even though now we're looking at man's responsibility, God's sovereignty is still there. It didn't go away. Man's responsibility doesn't make God's sovereignty disappear. It's still there. Paul's now focusing, though, on our side, on man's side. Paul, an apostle now, under the inspiration of the Spirit, brings in this little snippet from Isaiah 8, 14. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. People, namely in the context here, the Jews, will stumble over this rock. It will offend them. And it won't just offend them like their feelings get hurt. No, the word here is scandalon, from which we get our English word scandalize. Scandalon literally is a device for catching something alive, trapping them. This rock for the unbeliever will not only cause them to stumble, but it will be a rock that traps them. They fall and they can't get up. They're stuck. This stone is crushing them now is the idea. It has trapped them. It will be a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. If you go to Isaiah 8, 14, that's where he finishes there. A snare and a trap. They will reject the stone, and now they will be caught by the stone and not be able to escape. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? When Peter said, oh no, you, you won't go to the cross, Jesus. We'll make sure of it. What did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block. Same idea. You're a stumbling block for me. You are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Peter picks up this idea. He learned from that. He learned from a lot, didn't he? And when he wrote his letters, 1 Peter 2, 8, he says that the verse from Isaiah, he cites it as well. He says, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he says, they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this stumbling, they were also appointed. Israel was offended by Jesus. And God providentially, sovereignly put a rock in their path and they have to decide, are they going to build their life on the rock or are they going to fall over it and die? Back to Romans, the last part here of 33. This is the positive side. So we've, we've seen the negative side of the stone. If you don't believe upon the stone, if you don't believe upon Christ, you fall and it kills you eternally. But the positive side, 
Going back to Isaiah 28, 16. And the one who believes upon him will not be put to shame. Now, even in the Old Testament, if you go back to Isaiah, you will see this idea of faith. To, to, to believe upon him. To believe upon the stone. That's why when the Jews read this, they wouldn't have said, oh, he's just talking about a stone. You don't believe upon a stone. You believe upon a person. You trust in someone. And they would have read this and they would have known that this has some kind of prophecy here pointing to the Messiah. This person will not be put to shame if they believe, if they have faith. And the idea is continually believe upon him. They will be justified. They will be saved. Now, if you go back to Isaiah 28, 16, which you don't have to now, translations vary on how they finish out the verse. Uh, the LSB says, he who believes in it will not be disturbed. Other translations try to capture the idea. They say, he who believes in it will not be in haste or in a hurry. Others says, will not panic, will be unshakable. And, and the idea is hard to grasp there in the Old Testament. But Paul now brings it out in this quote. He's, he's really preaching. He's turning a quote into preaching the explanation of it. The idea in Isaiah is if you believe upon the rock, you won't be disturbed. Nothing is going to crush you. Nothing's going to fall on you, spiritually speaking. You'll be not ashamed. What does that mean? That means in the judgment. When people are shamed for their sin, when they stood upon false gods, when they stood upon rocks that weren't true rocks, they were really a house of cards, sand. Paul says, this rock will not put you to shame. This is the solid rock. This is the firm foundation. You will not be put to shame at the judgment. In fact, he used the same verb in Romans 5, 5. Hope does not put to shame because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The idea here is that under close examination, under scrutiny at the judgment, those who stood upon the rock, who believed upon the rock, Christ Jesus, will not be put to shame. Those who go into judgment will be shamed. Not those who believe upon the stone. Now all must trust in Christ. It's the only way of salvation. The stone still is right there before every person today. There's still a stone in your path. Maybe you've already believed upon the stone. Maybe you're here today and you think you have believed, but all that I've said is foreign to you. You've never really heard some of these things explained. You thought it was by works and faith. That is not someone who's believed if you're trying to work for it. That's not someone who's truly put their faith in Christ. The stone is there. Will you be put to shame? Or will you believe upon the stone? God has put it there. You can't take the stone out of your way. You can't say, I don't like this stone. I'm going to dig it up. The Jews tried to do that, didn't they? I'm going to get this stone out of here. Let's kill him. He comes back to life. Let's punish his apostles. It just makes the gospel spread even faster. The stone is always there. What will you do with it? Will you believe and continue to have faith in him, the solid rock? Or will you reject the stone, trip over it, and be scattered into dust? Lord, we thank you this morning that you have brought this text before our eyes. You are sovereign. You've intended this message to be preached today. We pray that you would use it, use it in the hearts of believers. Lord, please to sanctify us, to help us to grow in our understanding of, 
of Jews and Gentiles being saved. Help us to grow in our understanding of your word. Help us to be thankful. We talk a lot about giving thanks this time of year, this month. Let us be thankful for our salvation, Lord. I pray for those who don't believe, those who are maybe false converts or self-deceived or those who just wandered in for the day. I pray that you would use this message to pierce their hearts. Your word is sharp. It's a a two-edged sword. Use it, Lord. Use it to change hearts. Use it to save people as you have always done. We pray this for your honor, for your glory. Amen.